If you're enjoying the show so far, please consider helping by supporting our show. Although never expected, any support for our show enables us to keep bringing the audiobook club to your ears. Hello and welcome to the Audiobook Club. In this week's episode, we're so lucky to be joined by the stand-up comedian, writer, comedy audio producer at the BBC, Sam Russell. Sam, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you today? Very good. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a lovely day. We've got a World Cup final or a Euro final. I, I, apparently, I'm going to watch football this weekend. I very rarely do it, but <laughs> apparently this is an important one. So that's that's happening. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I watched like half of the last match on, was it like two days ago or something? And yeah. I got sort of the, the, the 4-0 victory from Sweden. I got sort of hooked. Happened to me on the Euros as well. Um, so on the show, um, we like to start off with a little bit of a, a self-introduction. Could you perhaps sort of tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into comedy, stand-up, uh, and most recently, uh, an insane gig at the BBC? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I started uh, doing... My first thing comedy was at Royal Holloway University, which is where I went to do uh, classics and uh, drama, because I'm a fancy boy. Uh, <laughs> And a couple of my friends that I made in the first year were doing an improv group called the Holloway Players. And they kept asking me to do it, to come along to a rehearsal or a warm up or something. And I kept saying, no, that sounds absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Trying to be funny completely spontaneously in front of hundreds of people. That sounds awful. And it took about two years. But then eventually, towards the end of the second year, I said, yep, fine, I'll come along for one. I did one rehearsal and they went, brilliant, you're going to do it the show next week at the Student Union in front of 400 people i thought that sounds Jesus. awful um but stepped on stage and started off doing a little one of those little huge lines at anyway games first laugh absolutely hooked did that uh literally every week uh at university uh and it was really really good fun uh then ended up being in a play that was going to the edinburgh fringe festival and I don't know if it, any of your listeners have gone. It's incredibly expensive, particularly if you've got a big cast doing a sort of uh, fancy sort of play. Yeah. And we needed to raise money. So me and a few guys who were in the play, who were also in the improv group, created this um, troupe called Shoot from the Hip, which basically started as a way of making money for the theatre production. And we did a few shows in London and they went very, very well. And that's basically what paid for the Edinburgh show. Nice. So we did the Edinburgh run, which was a serious play about being stuck in your own coma um, and very serious stuff. But when we came back, we thought that was really fun doing some shows, not just to students who love Harry Potter references, but actually in London, let's let's try and do some more of that. So we ended up going to talk to the Comedy Store players who still do two shows a week at the Comedy Store. If you like improv, go and see them. They are the grandmasters of the short form form. Uh and they basically said, don't do this. Uh, and then, but, they, but if you are going to do it, find an up and coming comedy club that is got a free night, basically. And this was the point that Top Secret Comedy Club, which is, in my opinion, the best comedy club in the UK at the moment, was only doing Wednesdays to Sundays. Mm. And they were all free shows, all bucket shows, stuff like that. And we came along and said, would you like us to do Tuesdays for you? And they were like, yeah, that sounds great. And so we started doing these shows on Tuesdays and the first one was very poorly attended, but eventually sort of word got out and we ended up doing a regular Tuesday show at Top Secret Comedy Club for about seven or eight years. Uh, expanded that group. We then did a regular Monday show at Angel Comedy for a few years. And at the peak, we were doing Top Secret Angel Comedy 
the Bill Murray up the creek, sort of doing four nights a week of improv. I was paying my rent on improv, which I don't think anyone has ever done before. <laughs> um, but for a various number of reasons, that uh, sort of started winding down. Um, but while it was still going, someone said, oh, Sam, that's this is really fun. You should try doing stand-up. And exactly the same thing with the improv. I said, absolutely not. That sounds terrifying. I don't want to know that something I've written in my bedroom is incredibly unfunny to the people. But again, this promoter just kept saying, just come and do five minutes, come and do five minutes. Exactly the same thing happened. Stepped on stage, did five minutes. This is absolutely fantastic. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. So started doing the improv and the stand-up side by side. Again, stand-up kept sort of, you know, you do your five minutes, you do your 10 minutes, you do a club 20. And I kind of lucked out, but because I'd done the improv before, being the host of a night, the compare, was quite natural to me. I liked having a chat with the crowd. I liked bouncing off the other act, seeing what they were going to do. Uh, and a little secret, if there are any new comedians listening, there are about 20,000 great cub comics in the country who can do a strong 20 minutes. There are about 500 who can host a good show. And right. if you if you can host, you're the second highest paid person on the bill. So that's sort of how I sort of made it in comedy, which is basically being put into clubs and being paid quite well to host. Uh, and then the pandemic happened and live comedy became illegal. And I sort of freaked out quite a lot. Yeah. And the first day that I uh, couldn't do a gig, I was uh, quite manic and quite terrified. Hmm. And people around me just sort of said, you need another outlet. And I went, okay, I'm going to write a book. And they went, yeah, you are. And so I went, yes, I am. Uh, so I <laughs> I ended up writing a sort of fantasy book over lockdown and just sort of sat myself down and said, I'm going to do a thousand words a day. Doesn't matter if it's shit. That's what I'm going to do. So I wrote this whole thing over lockdown, ended up finishing it, get, sending it to a few friends who were editors and stuff, and they had to look through it. And uh, I was happy with it, looked into getting it published as a real book. Mm. And I met a friend in publishing and they sort of said, look, for the first time writer, the first time that anyone's ever going to read this book after your first query letter is going to be two years. And the most you're going to make, unless it's something magical, is six grand from a first time sort of publishing. Yeah. And I went, I'm an improviser. I'm very used to immediate gratification. That sounds awful. Um, so I decided to publish it as an audiobook. So we, I found a, an, a, an actress called Catherine Russell, who was in Holby City, uh, who was very um, convenient for me to find because she's my mum. Uh, <laughs> uh, and together, she so she basically became the narrator for the book, and we released it as a podcast, and each chapter would come out every week. Mm. Um, and we didn't pay for any publicity or promotion. It was just me editing it on my laptop with the free software that I could find. Uh, and we ended up getting uh, lovely listens, lovely reviews, and we got £10,000 in donations. So that oh. worked out as a project, which is really nice. Uh, then I was still not having a job, and I got a couple of self-employment grants from the government, who I think did furlough and that sort of stuff very well. Mm. They said, I'm sorry, Sam you're not getting a third one. So I freaked out, sent my CV everywhere. Everyone sort of said no. Um, but The Spectator, which is a magazine in the UK, have a fantastic internship, which basically says, when you send in your application, if you put your name on it, we're going to throw it straight in the bin. If you put your education, we're going to put it straight in the bin. If you put any previous experience, if it's very specific, we're going to throw it straight in the bin. We need you, if you're going to be our broadcast intern, you've got to edit a podcast, you've got to edit a video, and you've got to produce a podcast 
like a this is the issue who you're going to get on and those are the tasks and i put them in and they went yep yeah, you can do this come and do the internship did the internship it was really i was quite nervous because i'm i'm from very lefty comedy world and it's the spectator is quite right leaning but they were it's the funniest office place I've ever worked in. They're all up for a laugh. They don't take anything too seriously and they don't mind being challenged. And that was lovely. And after the internship, I was freelance for them for a couple of months and then a permanent position came up and I applied for that same sort of process. Uh, And then they put me sort of through a hunger games style uh, interview where I was working for three months alongside the second, the other guy who might've got the job. So we were literally competing against each other while still trying to work together. Um, ended up getting that so I was the spectators podcast producer for two years and then uh, I loved that job it was really nice you got to meet some really wonderful interesting people Bill Gates smiled at me once we ended up (laughs) yeah we ended up interviewing Jelaine Maxwell's brother whilst the trial was going on oh my god and you know you you meet MPs and you find out that they're real people and they've got flaws and they can crack a joke and I had a chat with Jacob Rees-Mogg about Noel Coward for a while at one event, Julia Holly Brewer called me a fascist, which was fantastic. But someone sent me the link to the BBC audio comedy producer job and sort of said, this sounds like it was kind of written for you based on everything that you've done from that university days. Yeah. And I thought really hard about it. I thought, you know what, I'm going to do the application just in case. Sent it in and they said, yep, come in for an interview good coming for a second to you coming for a third to me and they offered it to me and i was quite torn because i really if it wasn't for the spectator on my cv for the bbc i don't think i would have got in and i mm. was enjoying the job that i was doing you know we were basically producing nine podcasts a week an hour-long youtube show and i was having to find all the guests so if someone wanted to say the assisted dying bill was a terrible idea i had to find a doctor to go no people should be able to do this because it would relieve suffering yeah. And I went to the editor, Fraser Nelson, who's one of the best bosses I've had, and sort of told him this. And he went, okay, uh, is this a negotiation? Are you asking for more money or do you want to do this? And I think, I, I, I think I'd be kicking myself if I didn't take this opportunity. And he was so nice about it. He sort of said, this is, of course, what you should do. This is sounds perfect for you. You're going up. This is what our internship was for. Mm-hmm. We take people who've had no experience in the industry what we see a talent in and they work themselves up and then they move on and now we've got someone at the bbc who you know is a friend of ours well you still come to the parties still come and hang out but this is what this is for good luck and you know almost had tears in his eyes while he was saying it so it was a lovely experience and now i've been at the bbc for just under two months and i'm developing new shows with again because i've been on the circuit for so long these comedians who i know are amazing and are brilliant mm-hmm. but for some reason they just it's a lot of this industry is just luck it's you meeting the right people at the right time are they there on the evening that you're there and so i can now find these people who i think are comic geniuses and try and build a project or a platform to show the world how funny i think they are so that's my story i hope that's not too long (laughs) no that was perfect so i've got so many questions to ask you from that um but just to to start off by sticking to the uh, the bbc the most recent thing now for for many the term producer can often be sort of wrapped up in a bit of mystery uh, as the job can encompass so many things um would you mind sort of breaking down the things that you get up to at the bbc and the tasks that the role itself requires so it's the two things you're kind of doing are production and development so mm. my 
current job is I am split between producing the next series of existing BBC Radio 4 and BBC Sounds and BBC Studio shows. And the other half is developing new ideas. Mm. And that can be for pitching to BBC Sounds, Radio 4, stuff like that. Uh, Finding talent and just having a coffee or a chat with them and going, what would you like to do? What do you what have you got a project that would work in this format? This is the commissioning brief. Do you think you've got something for this? Yeah. Having a chat with them, then they will basically we'll have an, an initial nugget of an idea. They'll go back and think about it. I'll meet them next week and see what's developed. I'll take that idea to my higher ups, my executive producer and my head of department, and they'll go, Have you thought about this? This isn't gonna quite work because of this. Why is this why should this be made now? So they'll challenge me in a really constructive way. I'll take those notes back to the artist or the talent. We'll then workshop it again. They'll either say yes to that idea or say that's not really me. Uh, and then that just sort of keeps going to the pro- until there's a commissioning date. And then you'll have a pitch, which is can be a 250 words, a thousand words thing of this is the show that I would like to make. And they'll either say not right now or we'd like to hear more. And then there'll be a two page document where you sort of go, this is my two pages. Yeah. It's expanding on the characters, on the idea, why this should be made now, how this will bring in a new audience. And from there, it'll go on to uh, it getting, and then it will get a green light. So that's probably the most that a, a talent will be doing for free in terms of working up the idea. And at that point, you'll get a budget and you'll get some commissioning money. And mm. then you're, again, working with the artist, developing it, getting the writers together, getting the technician together, booking the venue for the recording, deciding whether it's going to have a live audience or a studio. Uh, and then getting the scripts together if it's a narrative sort of thing uh, mm. and then you you record it and you make it and you edit it and put it in the uh broadcast sort of uh backlog getting ready to be put on yeah. the radio at some point is is it a thrill for you to sort of be involved with each step of the project seeing a project grow from like the general idea to you know when it's in the editing suite and and getting that is that a thrill for you or is it sort of like nerve-wracking thinking like any you know you've got multiple stages that something could fall through yeah i think again at any point in this industry whether you're a producer or a performer and believe me i've had incredible knockbacks in mm. my career like things that looked like they were going to happen and then completely fell by the wayside i've been on the other side i've been the guy with the scripts that i've written in a uh, production company and they've been like yeah we love it we love it we're great and then you don't hear anything back but yeah. and being from this side now it's it's not that they've gone off you it's that something has changed they've lost some money they've lost some funding the mm-hmm. commissioners have decided that they need to go a different way or something like that but those ideas never completely vanish they'll always they every producer knows oh we've i've got these five projects which weren't right at the time but when they hear oh that's going to be they're looking for this now they might they might get a call again not saying it's definitely going to happen yeah it's not it's not like it will eventually get made but we were talking today about a guy who's been pitching an idea in various forms for about 12 years and everyone's never gone i don't think it's going to work and it's now being produced Mm. So if you really think something is funny or interesting or important, just keep working on it. Just keep developing it. Keep thinking about how you can make it better. And yeah. it might not always work out, but if you genuine, if you are proven creative and you think you've definitely got a good idea, keep going. Mm. So like as you're, if you're pitching a show, do you pitch it from the standpoint of 
this is just something that I really believe in? Or do you have to sort of keep in mind that this is something that I believe in, but then it also fits what you're trying to do, what you're trying to do is like, you know, the BBC, um, like a direction that they're trying to go in. Is that always on the forefront of your mind is how can I make this repackaged into the direction that they're wanting to go in? Or is it simply just that I have this idea, you repackage it around me, if that makes sense? It's, it's always a compromise mm. because uh, when you're working... Uh, with a, a large group of people that you've got to figure out how if, if it's, it's whether you need to get this made in a, if you need to get this made in one way yeah. and you're not going to take any sort of bull in any sort of change for anything at all mm. that sometimes will happen it's very very rare mm. and one of the most important things that any creative can take is direction if you're always arguing with your editor or your producer or um, your director it is very and usually just you're never going to be the smartest person if there's 20 other people telling you something's wrong yeah be humble listen to those ideas listen to what they're saying don't dismiss it outright just because they say a character's not working actually go back and look at it hmm. never sort of make something you really don't want to make but the other thing is if you get one thing done and you do sort of try and fill a hole that needs plugging and it was great the next time you'll be given a little bit more rope to sort of go, oh, yeah, this guy did this. It worked really well. Yeah. She's fantastic. We'll trust her a little bit more with the next time. And you know, let's see what she can bring to the table next. And you'll be given more creative freedom. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I first saw you at Compare at the Top Secret Comedy Club in London. Um, brilliantly, I want to add. Um, you have such a relaxed stage persona, which was, this was so natural. And it looked like you were just having a blast up there. Did this comfortability develop over a long time of gigging in front of crowds for years to evolve you into looking so comfortable? Or was it something that really did come naturally to you? Um, I think for, for me, when it comes to performing, every new thing is always quite uncomfortable and quite scary. Mm. So the first time you do an improv show, you are quite nervous until it starts going well and then you get comfortable and relaxed. So mm. when I do Top Secret, which I've done a lot of times, or I do an improv show, or I'm doing a 20 minute set, mm. I I feel fine. This is my it's it's my job. It's, I'm I'm going to go and do a day at work. But the first time I did 20 at Top Secret, I'll be very nervous beforehand. The first time I went to the comedy store, I was very nervous beforehand. The first time I did an Edinburgh yeah. show for an hour, very mm. nervous beforehand. Uh, I did a cruise ship again, very nervous. But then it's you sort of get into it and you go right. I've got to get through this now. So I'm going to do the best job I can, even if it's a bad room, and then just keep going like that. But again, I think the main thing, for, if there's any stand-ups listening, I do think doing some improv training to get that relaxedness, that comfortability, to make sure it doesn't sound like you're reading a script Yeah, when you're doing stand-up is a really helpful set of skills to have of being able to yes and, which is a very famous improv term, which is whatever an idea is thrown at you you don't say no to it you yes and it you go yep i agree and that you can do that with laughs so in my opening there'll always be a very dark joke there'll be a political or sort of topical thing there'll be a silly voice and there'll be some sort of crowd work and based on or and a story and based on what they react to you go right that's what they want this evening i'm going to do that so if they don't laugh at the dark joke i'm going to cut the rest of the dark jokes that are going to come out this time they don't and that's from improv of kind of hearing where the laugh is and, and following that yeah does comedy writing have to be a mindset like at this point 
are you always looking for routines for sources of comedy within everyday life i wish i'm a very bad comedy writer i don't <laughs> i don't write nearly enough i rely on some very old routines that sort of came up when i was very young and very hungry and they're always developing you'll always add little bits to that but mm. there are two kinds of uh comedians there are performers who write so they can perform and there are writers who perform so they can write and i am certainly the performer before the writer yeah. um when it comes to the comedy and so i and one of the great things again for pushing yourself to write new stuff is social media so if you've put your all of your material and clips on tiktok and they've gone quite well or something like that and mm. people are going oh when's the next video and you've put everything up there <laughs> you have to start writing some new stuff so I, I i've done that a bit this week with some of those videos from top secret and they've gone quite well yeah. and i've gone oh god i'm gonna be back at top secret next week i don't know if i'm gonna have a new clip and all right and last night i was like okay ping you getting turned away from a nightclub is that anything and i'll just go up it's like all right come forward come forward come forward hey whoa 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 no not tonight man and you sort of you know and it gets a few laughs but i did it last night and it goes that needs a punchline yeah, the pingu voice is quite funny, but it needs a punchline. Um, so yeah, it's it's. It, I think it probably. I think it would be very good for me to sit in the same way when I wrote the book to sit down and go. You're going to do a thousand words of jokes today. It doesn't matter if they're shit. Yeah, I think. It, sorry, can I swear on this? Yeah, yeah, go for okay, it. Yeah, it doesn't matter if they're fucking shit. Um, but yeah, I I I should write more, and I don't because I know for the gigs that I'm doing at the moment, it's not necessary. Yeah, because people are coming back to see me. They come into the club. <laughs> so, like, yeah, I, I get that. It's a it's a really interesting way of looking at it. So you're kind of like a performer first, really. That's the bit that you sort of settle into uh, with these. It's interesting during during that um, week where I, I came to see a, a fair few shows, including yours, and um, I came down on my own, and I was I was really eager to sit quite far at the back to try and avoid getting rinsed. Um, you were constantly, you know, when you do an audience work as a compare or, you know, just generally in stand up or maybe even improvisation. Are you constantly on the lookout for audience members on, um, you know, who look like you can get something out of them? Or is it really like completely at random? It is completely at random. I mean, if someone's got a strong look that, you know, you look at them and there's a gag there. So if there's someone with blonde hair and blue eyes and you go, you look like Hitler's wet dream, you know, that's... <laughs> That's that's there's an easy thing to go to. If there's a group of lads yeah. going, oh, I, I, yeah, what, look at this boy band over here. So there's there's some visual elements yeah. there, but for me, going into talk to the audience is just a nice way of me relaxing and and, and being able to bounce off. So yeah. you know, and you can you're always looking for a segue. So if someone says, oh, I I work at Buckingham Palace, and you go right, I can do my royal family bit now. Or if someone says, I uh, work at MP, uh, which I had last week, then, oh, yeah, I can do my political bit now. Or even if someone's going, yeah. I'm a lawyer. I used to date a lawyer. I'm a student. Here's my student story. So there's all, yeah. everyone's got something relatively interesting to say. And even if it's boring, you can make a joke out of it being boring. Yeah, that's really interesting. So is, yeah, that idea of, you know, you're sort of picking the gold where you can from that audience, but then also using it to segue back into your stories to help it seem sort of seamless and I guess that sort of helps with the idea that it is natural because it's like you heard this. Oh, that reminds me. Um, that kind of idea. That's really interesting. Um, do, uh, while traveling with the show, um, I've heard that audiences can uh, differ a little bit. So, for instance, a routine that goes down well on a Friday night in Blackpool may be received a little differently on a Tuesday night in Chipping Norton. Do you ever sort of factor in where you're performing to what type of material you're going to run? 
Yeah, hugely. Um, there are London is a lot more apart from top secret. Actually, is usually a lot more sensitive and to use the catch word of the day, kind of woke. Mm. And even if you're doing a joke about a sensitive subject, that is completely it's just 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 about the subject rather than it being an offensive joke. Mm. But you can you can hear the sphincters tightening when you just mention a word. Whereas sometimes when you go out of London, they're a lot more relaxed. They're a lot more open. They're up for having a laugh. Uh, during the referendum and s- subsequently afterwards, I had a Brexit joke. Mm. And I thought it was part of my regular joke in my routine. And I do it in uh, remain and leave areas. And if it didn't get the huge laugh, uh, you know, it would be, oh, I can see 52% of the audience didn't like that joke. And then that would get a laugh and you'd respond yeah. to that. But it's that same thing of just having that opening five of going, these are the things that I can do. Which ones yeah. do they like? Do they like a chat? Do they want to sit back and listen to a story? Let's go from there. Yeah, that's interesting. So you've kind of almost kind of got to have like a load of backups in case to like the, the punchlines, I guess. Is that a way of thinking about it? It's not backups to punchlines. It's knowing when to sort of pull out of something potentially a bit earlier or rushing to a laugh that you know is kind of stable and then moving on to something else. Hmm. But I'm I, I just, I'm quite weird when it comes to sort of doing an actual set. Is there hmm. most comedians when they come on will have 20 minutes. They know which bit follows which bit, which follows which, which and what their closer is. I don't really do that. I've got about 20 or 30 things that I could do in my head and mm. I just do them as they come to me, which sometimes doesn't work out because I don't leave on the biggest laugh. I don't have that big pleasing thing at the end. Yeah. But usually it's much nicer in terms of keeping it going because if I go, if there's some comics who will go, All right, I'm going to do my five-minute routine about my relationship. That didn't work. I know I've got another five minutes coming about my relationship and they can't sort of jump to something else. Yeah. I'd find that very restrictive. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, I didn't want to dwell too much on this topic as I'm sure you get asked it uh, about it all the time. Um, but this whole idea of, uh, you know, a small percentage of people being offended often on other people's behalfs, that whole offense culture thing. Have you seen a change over the years regarding this or is it, is it simply something that only really exists on Twitter? I've definitely seen a change. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. It's um, it's it's the, the people. A lot of clubs are more worried about a single bad trip advisor review yeah. than ninety nine percent of the audience enjoying something. Yeah. So they would they would ra- they would rather get the audience sort of enjoyment all as over at eight, and not risk that bad review then have most everyone at a 10 and one person being very upset Mm. and i think that is it's it's because it's a business though it's like if you are a high-ranked comedy club one really bad review can bring you down you're gonna you're gonna lose money um so those individual voices that you do hear on twitter they have a power it's the same way if you're doing a show and 99 percent of the room are laughing and you see one person who looks very grumpy that's the person that you see on stage going, this is, this, everyone else is enjoying this. What's your problem? Or how am I failing you? Um, but yeah, I, there, I've had friends and I've done sort of clubs where they've gone, no jokes about this, no jokes about this, no jokes about this. And it's like, but I wasn't going to come on. I'm, yeah. You've seen my act. You've booked me. I'm not going to come on and be racist. <laughs> why why, why yeah, would you yeah, think yeah. I was going to do that? 
but it's there are again to use a popular term there are trigger words and if you yeah. say them even if you're saying them in the best will in the world with an intellectual backing up to it and you know just talking about the subject people get very uncomfortable is that frustrating um to you as a as, as a creative because you know, as you say, there's, there's, you know, those sort of topics can often be handled, you know, as of course, you're going to approach them in a professional manner, because it's your job, you don't want to be sacked from this, you know, you want people to have a good time. Is that frustrating to you that you sort of almost don't have that trust that you're going to handle something properly? I think there's two ways to go with it. I've seen a lot of comedians get very frustrated and they end up making podcasts about free speech saying you can't say anything anymore. Yeah. But those comedians doing that, I've done gigs with them in churches and mosques and baby brunches and cruise ships and old people's homes. And they don't do those kind of you know, incredible yeah. you know, edgy jokes at those gigs because yeah. they're a professional. And that's the way I look at it, going, I, you've booked me to do a job here. You've asked me not to talk about these things. Absolutely fine. Yeah. That's my, I'm here to do your job. And I will go and I'll do one club down the road where they say, don't talk about these things. And then the next day I'll be, I'll be at a club where they're going, yes, we love these things. More of these things. Yeah. Cruise ship. I did 45 minutes on a cruise ship, no sex, no swearing. And I wasn't like, going, oh, you're, 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 you're crushing my free speech. Like, <laughs> I'd said I'd take the money and knew what the conditions were, so I'm yeah. going to do the job. I don't yeah. think I'm some sort of precious artist who needs to sort of have every single one of their words enshrined in stone. <laughs> I'm a gigging comedian who is going to yeah. play the club that, that and play the audience that they've they've booked, been booked for. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's totally fair. You have um you have glowing reviews and testimonials. I saw a great line from Kate Copstick, which must have been quite the boost. Um, taking a show to like the fringe, uh, are critics the target for you to impress, or is it a case of just this is me, this is the kind of stuff that I do, and I'm going to stick with it? Here's uh, what I would say to anyone thinking about taking a show to the fringe low low expectations and a positive attitude go up with the idea that the most you're going to get out of it is you're going to be doing an hour or half an hour however long you're doing of comedy alongside a load of other guest spots 30 days in a row you're going to the comedy gym you will mm. come back a better comedian mm. if you want to get anything more out of it or if you've got lofty ideals of what's going to happen most of the time you are going to be disappointed yeah so just it's you and, and again you are going up against people not against people that sounds like it's a competition but you are there are people up there who have spent six grand on pr a grand on flyers a grand on posters they've paid for the big room they have an agent who's talked to the guardian who's because uh, all the every, every arts critic and journalist at the moment is going oh god i've got to write a piece about the fringe again they're calling up the agents and going can you just give me a story who's on? and they're going yes i've got yeah. these comedians on my books this this is the story for you and they go thank you again it's not like there's some sort of secret illuminati cabal that are trying to make someone a star yeah. it's journalists who are desperate to write something who want the easiest way of getting hold of it calling someone who knows a lot of people going because do you really think a journalist is going to go through the fringe brochure and research every comedian in there of course they're not. I was one for two years. We're lazy people. They're gonna they're gonna call someone who can give them a, a curtailed information 
oh, they're going to go to the PR and they've all been paid money to do it. So we can tell the information to get that out easier. And that's how it works. So if you're going to the fringe, do as many guest spots as you can, network, meet people, work on yourself, work on your show. If you get something out of it, if you make some, if you make a profit, you that's amazing. If yeah. you get some nice reviews like the Kate Copstick one, that's amazing. But it might not happen. Just, yeah. just assume it's going to be a fun month where you're having, you're doing the thing that you love to do every day for a month, and you'll be better afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. Being a um, being a compare, seeing and spending time with you know countless comics um, at some of the best comedy venues around the world. Um, who's some of the most inspiring performers you've had a chance to work with? Do any sort of stick out to you? I imagine there's quite a few. <laughs> Uh, I, this is this is both one of my favorite and my least favorite comedy stories. Um, so I do Angel Comedy a lot, which again is mm-hmm. a fantastic club, and for new comics, they do a brilliant sort of um nights called Angel Comedy Raw, which you email them. It takes you a long time to get on because it's a very popular night. But if you're a new comic who's used to doing open mics where it's ten other comics who really want you to suck and they're ten friends this is the club to sort of see am i actually have i actually got something here because it's a proper audience i'll Mm. be hosting there'll be a couple of tv and sort of five-star show radio comics on as well trying out new stuff and you'll come on in the second half and get to try your five minutes with a proper warmed up audience so it's a lovely club but i was there on a sunday on one of these nights and done the whole show every act's gone on and this was 2017 18 i think uh uh done the whole show i'm halfway through the bucket speech which is the most important part of a free comedy night because that's when you're telling people to to pay you to put money in the bucket i'm halfway through it and this lovely comic james od who runs the thursday nights at angel but he was doing the sunday there comes up to me halfway through we've got one more act i'm like what are you talking about halfway through he goes trust me we've got one more act and i went okay ladies and gentlemen one more act and the doors open and this guy walks in, big coat, trilby hat, glasses, and he takes them off together, all together like Superman. And it's Louis C.K. Jesus. But it's Louis C.K. two months before he got cancelled. So he is in yeah. town editing his film, um, I Love You, Daddy, which should have been a red flag as it was about a powerful male director grooming <laughs> young girls. Uh, uh, but anyway, so he was there and it was when he if for comics he was seen as a god at that time yeah but the U- general uk public didn't really know him that well so when everyone saw who he was every comic in the corridor came out and just lines the wall to watch and the few people in the audience who knew who he was went absolutely insane but 80 percent of them were like this is weird yeah. and he came on and did 20 minutes of material that no one will ever see again because he was working up to his newest show yeah, and then he got cancelled two months later. So oh it's God. a 20 minute Louis CK set of stuff, which again was incredibly funny and you could see him working and he's got great craft and he's, he's done some very dodgy things, but he is still a fantastic comedian. And that was like, this is going to be a chapter for my book. And I, I the yeah. evening standard reported it and, uh, and called me and sort of, we I talked about, this is going to be a great memory ever, ever two months later. Oh, come on. Why? <laughs> Why did you do that, Louis? Come on, just wank alone like a normal person. <laughs> but yeah, so that that was that was cool. Yeah. My God. This uh <laughs> Yeah, I think like it was it was a shock to me sort of seeing that whole um 
the, the top secret comedy club and I know there's, there's a fair few others who just have the surprise accent you never know what you want to see I saw um, the first time um, I went to the comedy store like literally like the day I left um, on the evening I saw that Chris Rock had turned up and things like that this is you know for I, I come from just outside of Leeds and we don't really have that much up here of that sort of thing. So that whole idea is just incredibly alluring. Um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about Evergreen, if that's okay. Um, so a fantasy audio series written by none other than yourself. And I know we've talked about it at the start. Could you just remind us, give us a little refresh about what, what this project's about and why people should listen to it? Uh, Evergreen is a fantasy book with comic elements sort of in a sort of Pratchett, Neil Gaiman sort of vibe. Yeah. It's basically biblical Adam has lost Eve and is looking for her. Uh, so the idea is in the Bible, if you've got any uh, uh, Christians who listen to this, uh, in the Bible, the, the punishments that Adam and Eve are given from transgressing is Eve will have great pain in childbirth and Adam will have to work for the rest, toil in the fields for the rest of his life. Right. And it's the idea that those two, what those two punishments actually mean is separation. So mm. Eve is taken away by God or the gods in this book. And uh, her pain in childbirth is she's never going to have them. And mm. Adam is thrown into the beginning of human history and he's going to be toiling forever to find her. Because again, in the Garden of Eden, there's the tree of knowledge, which they're not meant to eat from, but there's also the tree of life, which if you eat from it, it becomes immortal. So he gets, they both basically get force-fed the tree of life apple, which means they're going to suffer forever. And it's yeah. basically Adam going through human history, looking for clues, trying to find her. And he ends up accidentally, because he's a big bumbling Labrador sort of car character, inventing a lot of mythological heroes and things like that. So the first book, half of it takes place in medieval Nottingham, where mm -hmm. he just he rose up uh, on the shore after spending some time in America, sort of, you know, uh, with a uh, sort of tomahawks and sort of tribal tattoos and stuff like that and sort of just sort of going oh that was a long way and he ends up walking through uh, England and eventually bumps into some outlaws in Sherwood Forest and accidentally ends up becoming Robin Hood uh, and so it's his story uh, again looking for his wife because he thinks that she's in Nottingham Castle and then the uh, second half is or the second half the sort of second story is the modern day one with him falling into South London, into some bins with a new clue that sort of relates to the Nottingham story and him going off to find her whilst God's wife or ex-wife, who's very, very bitter with God, decides that she wants yeah. to be God now and is about to try and start a great revolution to sort of overthrow him. Yeah. Uh, and they all tie together. But yeah, it's it's a, it's a one of those big magnus opus things that's been in my head for, for a long time. And I just, I had time to do it because I couldn't do any other form of creative things. So I thought, yep, yeah, it's time to actually write this now. Let's have some fun. Was it quite therapeutic then, really, delving that in? If if you've been sort of drumming it over on, like you know, um, you know, throughout the years, and then lockdown comes, and that was it quite therapeutic then to say, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna invest the time properly needed into this project. Yeah, it was really nice because it's it literally. I think the first nugget of the idea came to me when I was sort of fourteen. I used to do this very weird job of watching films and writing down all the swear words and all the sex and all the violence in it. And I was watching the most boring slasher horror film with like all the tropes or something like that. And there was one time where they were running through the fields and there was a big sort of clouds in the sky looking like a storm was coming. And I just went, 
and then the storm dragon arrived and i thought that's fun i want to write something a story with a storm dragon in. and it all sort of came from there and i was very big into my religion and my mythology at that sort of time and i think i i it was a film script originally which i've read again absolutely awful and then there was a point in time a few years ago i was thinking about doing a comic book of it and got some art and got some panels drawn up and that fell apart for various reasons and then i just thought what's the one thing i can literally do on my own i've got nothing else to do bash this out and then i started learning the audio stuff and thought you know what bash this out as an audiobook because my mum's an yeah. actress she can't work at all anymore anyway let's give it a go so how did you find the production side of it? Of Because, um, I mean, this podcast uh, mainly started out um, talking about audiobooks. That's what I do for a living. I produce audiobooks and um, it was chatting about the production process and, in, in, you know, with uh, various other audiobook producers and publishers and things like that. How did you find that uh, that that um, experience of producing an audiobook? Was this the first audiobook um, or, you know, audiobook style thing you've produced? Definitely the first audiobook style thing. I'd done a couple of podcasts by the time we were I was I'd done the spectator internship and done a few mm. freelance things by the time the first chapter of Evergreen came out. Um I really enjoyed it. Uh it was nice to work it's, you know, you very rarely get to work on a big project with your mum. And if you like your mum, it's quite a nice thing to do. Yeah. And you know, she the funny thing is when she read the book when it was gonna be a book, she absolutely hated it. <laughs> she really did uh because she hates lord of the rings she hates fantasy she's like it's yeah. all, everything sort of just went over her head it's like why do i care about this but because when you're breaking down the chapters with someone and she gets she has to ask questions about everything to be able to understand why this is relevant why this yeah. character is saying this what's the motivation here she kind of got in my head and then she could she appreciated the story because she did she had her fantasy hat on yeah. so that was really nice and then she would basically sit in uh, this weird dry box that my dad made because he had his weird lockdown projects as well. He's now got a dedicated sewing room. It's the oh, weirdest. Nice. It's, the, it's the most sort of chill midlife crisis anyone's <laughs> ever had. He just sews weird trousers and makes beautiful bags all day. But he'd made this weird polystyrene box. So she would have a microphone in there. She'd read the whole chapter, send it to me. I'd maybe give her some notes, some things to re-record. Yeah. I put that into Hindenburg, which is the software that I use to edit them, and then put in ambience, choose some free music, find some yeah. sound effects on YouTube, stuff like that. And then I send that back to her. She'd listen to it and go, that needs to be louder. I don't think that quite works. Yeah. Let's, could we have a few more arrow shots at this point to really sell this battle? And then we'd put it out. Yeah. That's interesting. So when you were when like directing um Catherine, utterly amazing actress Catherine, would you um how did you find that with obviously being her son? Did you have to sort of say, Okay, I'm gonna I'm I'm talking to you now as a as a, you know, director? And like did you you know, did you find that sort of challenging or did it come quite naturally? No. again, the thing that we've had is we we could we had some blistering arguments about things where she's like, This doesn't make any sense. Well, yes it does, because if you understand <laughs> Uh, so ancient Norse mythology, this is why this is here. It's like, you know, it's, yeah. and, so, and we'd always, and again, this is the other thing, like I said, with the other project, I compromised on this book multiple times yeah. because she made a good point. And it's always, yeah. if you're a creative, just always listen to people because no one has the story like you have in your head. And if, if Chris Rock, for example, says, if you tell a joke and they're not laughing, it's probably because it's not, it's not probably because it's not funny. It's because they don't understand the premise. 
yeah. they don't understand what you're talking about. So how can they laugh at the point you're making if they don't know what you're talking about? Yeah. And that's, yeah. So that was really helpful, sort of just taking those directions. And, you know, I would write, she say, tell me all the characters that are in this chapter. Tell me what you think they're going to sound like. Tell me a little bit about their emotions and their attitude. Mm-hmm. And then she'd sort of run with that and, and give it a go. And there were a few times where I get the thing back and go, I think we need to re-record all the lines for that character because it sounds a bit too silly or it doesn't sound quite right. And she'd go, yep, sure, fine. And, you know, we split the money. So it was not like she was doing it as a favour to her son. She hadn't yeah. worked for two years because of the pandemic and neither had I. So yeah, you got she was getting paid. Pay right. your mum. That's that's the, that's the rule for them. Yeah, I agree completely. Do you um so because you've done you know you produce podcasts for years and you're doing the things at the BBC Studios and BBC Audio now. Obviously, you have Evergreen. What is it about audio as a medium that sticks out to you? I think it's very not very easy. It is possible to do very well on a very limited budget by yourself. Mm. Uh, so I think that you know I've got friends who are filmmakers. Hmm. And they'll send me a script for a short film, uh, which they have no budget for. And there's a space battle on page one. And I'm going, what are you doing? You can't. Uh, how are you going to pay these VFX artists? What What are you talking about? Yeah. But if you're doing an audio thing, <clears throat> you can do that. And that's absolutely fine. So you're, unless you're trying to book huge names to be in it and sort of all stuff like that, yeah. you can kind of tell the biggest most outlandish fantasy epic story that you want to without having to pay for 20 outlaw medieval robin hood costumes so yeah it's, it, it allows your imagination is really kind of your only limit there yeah i i get that it's, it is the accessibility of it as well isn't it which is just so um which draws it certainly drawed myself into this sort of field as you say like um like uh, f- from where i am um just outside of Leeds there's not there's not that much you know there's definitely no investment going on into any of these creative projects so being able to just um sort of you know do it with a, a skeleton crew just you and your mates around a couple of microphones and and sort of create something you know which can be of any scale that you want is incredibly fulfilling I think I mean look at Joe Rogan Joe Rogan's the biggest podcaster in the world Joe Rogan yeah. has a very fancy studio now if someone, if suddenly he's found to never pay his taxes and the IRS takes everything away from him, the next episode of the Joe Rogan experience isn't going to sound that different if it's yeah. him and his mate with a couple of iPhones and some, uh, some, some, some of these mics. You know, I'm this is a yeah. podcast. Sorry, I'm holding up an, an Apple <laughs> iPhone mic. Um, yeah, so I, I think it's it's incredibly freeing in that regard. Yeah. Absolutely. The um, by the way, the link tree for where people can check out Evergreen will be linked um in the show notes. Um, so we just have time for one more question, if that's okay. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it's um, been really fun. To finish us off, is there any upcoming projects, anything approaching in the diary, perhaps a show that you're doing, a couple of shows that people can see that you that you're excited about? Yes, uh, we are doing. Uh, so I'm working with a, gr- a great comedian who had started doing improv with called Luke Manning. Uh, who was in the improv group shoot from the hip uh, that we are doing uh, that we did for years at top secret and at angel and stuff like that. And we are doing four shows in August at the bill Murray, which is angel comedy's second venue, which they opened a few years ago, which is absolutely beautiful. So we are going to be there on the 7th of August, 6 30 PM, the 13th of August at 5 30 PM. 
the 21st of August at 9pm and the 27th of August at 5.30pm. Uh, tickets are available on the Bill Murray's or Angel Comedy's website. Uh, we'd love to see you guys down there because it's going to be us doing our fun improv stuff and also some brilliant new sketches uh, from Luke Manning, which we're hoping to develop into a, into a bigger project, which is going to be really fun. Fantastic. Well, what I'll do is I'll put the website link um, and any info um, on in the show notes as well. So people can check that out um, and definitely get down to it if possible. So that just about does it for this episode of the Audiobook Club. All of the relevant links to social media accounts and websites, etc. will be linked in the description. Um, thank you so much for making us a part of your day. And another huge thank you to Sam Russell for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Audiobook Club. This episode was sponsored by Pro Audio Voices. If you have a story you want to bring to life, head over to ProAudioVoices.com to get in touch with industry professionals that can take care of every step of production, as well as offer support and guidance with marketing, growing your brand, and boosting your sales. Once again, that's ProAudioVoices.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.